Well, good evening. Uh, we have not seen Wes in at least three or four years. It's been a long time. He used to be across the street. So we are in for a treat. This is Dr. Wes Robbins. He is a Ph.D. LPC, president and founder of Eternal Strength and Counseling. Wes has been in the industry since 2004, serving in many substance abuse and mental health jobs. His present position with Eternal Strength is a comprehensive and holistic mental health treatment outpatient facility. That's a tongue tie. <laughs> combined with the Community Youth Center. They provide therapeutic, therapeutic care to families, youth, and young adults struggling with anxiety, depression, self-harm, and suicide, suicide issues. I didn't know that was a word. Suicidality. He's going to also talk about his own personal journey. Uh, Wes has been on this journey of addiction and substance abuse from ages 17 to 23, and he's going to relay how he moved through this dark night of the soul to work on his own holistic healing, but also to build a sacred space for youth, young adults, and families to move through their own journey of growth when they encounter depression, anxiety, substance abuse, self-harm, and suicide issues. As I said, he's going to speak from his own lived experience woven into his clinical experience and years in the field to bring about a new understanding of what it means to heal and grow. So Wes, I'm going to go ahead and pray for you, brother, then I'm going to invite you up here. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for Wes and the mighty work you've done in his life, and we look forward with great anticipation to his sharing his journey. And Father, I pray that his words will be your words and that you will offer all of us that are here hope and encouragement based on Wes's story and the passion he has for youth and families, Father. We just love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Brother Wes, you're up. I'm very grateful to be here. I've known John and Fair for, gosh, probably since 2014 is when I first met them. Um, and I want to tell you my whole journey, but I really like the prayer that you did, John. I'd study um, a book called A Course in Miracles. I don't know if you guys know that work. Beautiful book. And it has... Uh, kind of these daily devotional practices at the end and one of them recently was all things are echoes of the voice of God and I've been meditating on that one everything we encounter everything we move through has God embedded in it um, so I'll dive in um, I want to kind of give you guys this is so I've taught at university for years um, and whenever I teach out at university, I usually teach intro to psych, abnormal psych, developmental, cross-cultural. But I'll tell my students when I get up there, I'm like, I have to warn you, on the next slide is a nude photo of me. And they're all like, oh, my God, I thought this professor already looked weird, but this is, I'm going to have to report him. And then, of course, it's me. When I was younger with my mom um, and then my dad over there, and I want to say he was probably a little bit younger than me. He was probably in his mid-30s and I'm 41. Um, the reason I pull this up, so my mom has her master's in behavioral analysis and she's the executive director of Safe Path Children's Advocacy Center. It's in Cobb County. Works with abused and neglected children. So anytime there's an allegation of abuse or neglect, it goes through this advocacy center and it's a holistic one-stop shop. So they have they work alongside Department of Family and Children's Services. They work alongside Crimes Against Children, the law enforcement unit. They do forensic exams, medical evaluations. Um, 
the reason I bring that up is because she studied and done that work for so long and then her mom, my grandmother is 93 and has her EDD from Vanderbilt in psychology and has taught psychology for years. So whether I wanted it or not, you guys, it was embedded in my upbringing. Like, what do you think about society, culture, human behavior? And I'm like, I don't know. Um, I feel grateful to carry this torch and to have gotten my PhD from the University of West Georgia, to have gone on to study psychology, but I wouldn't have done that without those two women, a very strong maternal lineage that I come from. And this was me growing up, looking cool, as always. I was awful at basketball, and I made it on the team, and I scored one shot. They finally let me on the court, and I scored, and I scored for the wrong team. <laughs> and the whole time, I, was, I thought they were like, Wes, go, Wes. And I went, and I shot, and then I turned, and everybody was going, no, Wes, no. We still won the state championship, and I actually hurt the team by scoring for the wrong team. So I wasn't, sports wasn't my thing, but then as soon as I found music, this was what took over everything. I was, um, gosh, I think it was eighth grade, so it had to be 1994, and my dad picked me up from middle school, and he said, Wes, look in the glove compartment. I opened the glove compartment, it's two tickets to the Rolling Stones, Voodoo Lounge Tour, Georgia Dome, my first live music ever. I'm like 13, 14, we go, and I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. And we laugh now because we thought that was like 1994. We thought it was going to be their last tour. <laughs> we were like, you guys are getting pretty old. They're probably done. And so then when my dad turned 70, this was a few years back, I, I drove over. Uh, my wife and I, we've been married 13 years, have two little daughters. But I rode over to my parents' house and I said, hey, dad, come out to the minivan. Look in the glove compartment. And I bought us two tickets for the Rolling Stones in Florida. We went and saw them. And then we just went and saw them last time they came here. Zach Brown Band opened up, and my good buddy Coy is the lead guitarist for Zach Brown Band. He was texting me while he was backstage, and I'm like, this is crazy. But that's 25, almost 25 years later, and we're like, this is probably the last tour. They're getting pretty <laughs> old. So I don't know, man. Maybe they'll get... But I fell in love with music and art and went to so many different shows. Tom Petty, um, just, I, I just, shows and concerts became it for me and I started to play guitar and I started to take guitar lessons and that was my everything where I poured all of my energy. And I wanna tell you guys another quick story. I remember um, right around this, so there on the, what's that, the right side of y'all? Yeah, this is my sister in the background goofing around um, but over there I was probably 14 and Guitar Center over off of um, Galleria Cumberland Mall area you guys know that Guitar Center it was doing its grand opening I remember this vividly because I had my ponytail and was growing out my hair and was so excited you know let's go look at some guitars my dad took me up there and they came over the loudspeaker. It was the opening day, and they were like, look, we're about to do a guitar competition in store. You can get up on stage, and you get one minute to play your best material. 
and whoever wins will get two tickets tonight to Joe Satriani. And Joe Satriani was this just insane noodler guitarist, and I was in awe of him. And so my dad was like, Wes, you have to do it. And I was like, no way. No, I can't do it. I was, I was too shy. I was like, there's no way I'm going to get up and do a competition. And he was like, I saw him kick into gear, and he was like, no, 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 you really, you're going to regret it if you don't. And then I, he kind of pulled back, and he stopped himself. And he was like, you know what? If you decide to do it, I think it'll be awesome. If you decide not to do it, okay, I think you'll probably regret it. But I want you to know I love you no matter what, and I'm cool with whatever choice you make. I'm going to go over here and look at the drums. And he left. And I had this moment where I was like, oh, man. And I took a moment to myself, and I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to go do it. And I went, and I did it, and I won, and I won the tickets. But I will tell you this. If my dad would have talked for two seconds longer, there's no way I would have done it. I would have just leaned in and been like, nope. But the fact that he gave me some space, some autonomy, some independence, made me lean in and try it. So I want to fast forward moved to about 17 and again I'm infatuated with music with art I've always been on the fringes risk-taking sensation seeking so I get a job at Camelot Music at Town Center Mall I don't know if you guys remember that at all up on uh, Barrett Parkway Kennesaw Music Store and I start working there and most of the guys that work there are in their early 20s and I think they're the coolest of the cool. I'm like, these dudes are awesome. They listen to the same music as me, funk, jazz, creative stuff. So that's my endeavor into substance use. Never thought I would use substances, but I started to get around these young people. And so my entry point was marijuana. Started smoking marijuana around 17 years of age. And for me, it became something that Initially, I was very um, distant from, but then as I got around people that I felt like were cool and I didn't see them going downhill, I was like, maybe, you know, the huge drug campaigns that happened all throughout elementary school and middle school just say no. They would come to the school, they would show us the horrors of drugs. I even remember coming home and telling my mom one time, I'm afraid the drugs are going to get me. I'm like, you know, eight, nine years old, and she's like, no, 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 the drugs aren't going to get you. They, they only get you if you choose to go use them. And I'm like, who would ever decide to go do these things that create so much pain and heartache and havoc? But then what I saw was my risk-taking combined with my impulsivity, combined with my sensation-seeking, combined with the right group that was experimenting, made all of those kind of precautions go away. And I was like, you know what, I'm very curious. So my use escalated to cocaine, methamphetamine. I ran um, pretty hard with that for about a year and a half. And it was very tumultuous. Um, Three arrests, emotional turmoil, fallout with my family. And I remember hitting a point with my hardcore drug use where I was like, This is soul loss. I don't even feel like myself anymore. And so I finally, after these three arrests, after um, years of just what I call my dark night of the soul, got to this place. And it was December 2005. I was sitting in my apartment. I was working in a CD shop. 
and I had stopped using all hardcore substances. So I wasn't using cocaine, I wasn't using methamphetamine, but I kept going back to marijuana. And some of my rationale for that was it's nowhere near as severe. I can have a relationship with it. Now I'll name to everybody in the room, I don't think that marijuana is horrifically evil, nor do I think it's the healing of the nation. I think it's a plant. I think it shifts consciousness, and I can show you people that may have a healthy relationship with it and those that have a very abusive, codependent relationship. My relationship with it was very enmeshed, abusive, codependent. It became a crutch. It was daily. And so even though coming away from my hardcore substance use was difficult, I would say that the emotional and psychological relationship I have with marijuana was even more difficult to break ties from. Um, December 2005 was the last time I smoked marijuana. I was sitting in my apartment. I was watching a Red Hot Chili Peppers DVD. Do you guys know that band at all? Um, And that was my sister, my younger sister and I, that was our favorite band. And we really connected over that. And they had a lot of songs about addiction, substance use, um, soul loss, pain, difficulty. And there I was, and I was sitting there and I was watching this band. And I'd read the lead singer's autobiography. And he talked a lot about his journey with addiction, overcoming addiction. And it just started to flood over me. I was 23, 24 years old, and all I could think was, what have I done with my life over the last seven years? The only thing I have to show is that I could outsmoke Snoop Dogg. Congratulations, Wes. And I was just, there's some humor in it, but really what, what I started to experience was, I've given up my family, my friends, my relationship with my sister, with spending time with people. I'd given up music. I'd given up art. I'd taken everything that used to make my soul sing and breathe and give me passion and purpose in my life, and I'd set it all behind substances. And so I had this haunting feeling of where would I be if seven years ago I had gone a different trajectory. I had come away from my use. And that question haunted me so intensely that I was like, I know right now I got a couple choices. I can either continue to have a relationship with marijuana, continue to use, and I'm never going to find peace in my heart, and I'm never going to connect with what I know my life needs to be, or I can detach from this abusive relationship with this plant and move in a direction and pour love and light and healing and growth and holistic wellness back into my own life. And so that's what I started to focus on 24, 25, 26, I went and hiked Kennesaw Mountain almost religiously every day. For whatever reason, there was healing there for me, and I could go up on Kennesaw. I could park at Burn Hickory, take a book bag, some water bottles, some music, a journal, and I could go spend three or four hours hiking, listening to music, writing, and I knew as long as I didn't use that day, those were the most beautiful days that I had. So it was almost a, a reconnecting with myself, with music, with art. And during that time, I went on and uh, started a master's program in counseling, finished that master's program, did my internship at Peachford Hospital, began working with young people that were in their intensive outpatient program or IOP finished my license as a professional counselor, 
and that's when I opened my private practice. Was was right around um, 2014. I found now six years prior to that, I worked with an organization called Vive Family Support Program. They're now called Team Wonder. Amazing. The founder Dave Hers, amazing out of Colorado, and my clinical supervisor Willow Rubin, incredible human beings that taught me what it was to do true humanistic person-centered relational therapy with youth. They really showed and carved a way to be able to meet with youth and connect with them and get them to open up fully. And so that's what I did for six years here in Atlanta. And we were working with several young people as young as 10, as old as 25 that were coming out of wilderness therapy programs, therapeutic boarding schools, residential treatment centers, So I did that for six years, and it was this beautiful experience. I learned so much about myself. These young people were incredible. There was no um, office. I would go out into the community and work with them. So we'd literally get like 25, 30 bucks each session. I went out to eat more times than I knew what to do with. One time I ate at Waffle House three days in a row. Every client wanted to go to Waffle House. I was like, damn, man, this is crazy. Went mountain biking, hiking, rock climbing. I went skydiving with a client. Anything to be able to build true trust, connection, rapport, and to to connect with another human soul. And these young people changed my life, y'all. I get very emotional when I talk about it because in that six years of being a therapeutic mentor, then a parent coach, then the clinical team lead for Atlanta, I nothing was more important to me. That, that was God's gift to me. That was the thing I was good at. I could meet with any youth and I felt like I could connect and be myself and offer healing sacred space and that they would be influenced and impacted in a positive way. So during that time, I worked with young people, anxiety, depression, substance abuse, self-harm, suicidality, but I always saw a human soul. And I was studying psychology the entire time, and I can sit with the best of them, and I can sit with clinical neuropsychologists and understand the DSM and diagnoses and schizophrenia and schizoaffective thought disorder and mood disorders. But for me, what was always important was seeing that humanity and never dehumanizing whatever that person was going through. So I did that. And then in 2014 is when I got accepted to a PhD program at the University of West Georgia. Very unique, creative PhD that focuses in humanistic, transpersonal, and critical psychologies. Really beautiful blend of professors and teachers, a lot of philosophy and um, Eastern practices embedded into psychology and clinical psychology. Started that At the same time, I was the clinical director of this program, Vive, and I thought I could do both. And then that first semester Thanksgiving hit, and I was like, there's no effing way. The the academic rigor of this PhD program and me trying to work this full-time job as a clinical director, it wasn't going to happen. So I was in my own therapy at the time with some beautiful mentors, and I sat with them, and they were like, Wes, you got to pick. Where are you going to put your efforts? And I just, we just had, my wife and I had had our first daughter, Story, who's now 10. So crazy to say. Um, and she was a year old, and we just found out that she had pretty severe special needs. So autism, 
childhood apraxia of speech, sensory issues. Um, we took her to the Marcus Autism Center and I was dealing with that. And I was like, you know what? Being a father and being a husband is my number one. For me, it's God, spirituality, connection, then family. And then I want to do this PhD. I'm feeling called to do this. It felt like part of my family lineage going on. And I really wanted to study in the way that they offered that I could. So, yeah, bless you. Um, in 2014 is when I decided to go into private practice. And I was very nervous. And I was like, all I want to do is supplement the income that I've had from this full-time gig, go into private practice. So I went in two days a week, and the first year I doubled my income. And I was like, man, this is, and I'm just like, this is feeding my soul. I got a small little office over a paper mill, and I started to let everybody that I knew in the community, that I knew the educational consultants, Tamara, Rosemary, Dr. Lisa Shyatt, I just said, I'm moving here. I got to focus on my studies. I'm going to do my private practice. And you guys, from 2014 to 2019, I had three different offices. They all grew in size, and I got many more tattoos. I didn't always have this many tattoos. But what I noticed was when I could really tune into myself and let my own light shine, I could give others permission to do the same. Not telling young people to get face tattoos. I know that you could. <laughs> I don't mean it like that. I mean it from the standpoint of can you truly be comfortable in your own skin? And I have a really good buddy, John, who I love. He's down in Florida. He's in his early 60s. And I remember at one point I was talking to him and I was like, John, I'm growing my beard out, man. I'm getting more tattoos. About to get another gold tooth. And he's like, Wes, I don't care. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, I love you, man. I don't care. I see your soul. If you feel good when you look in the mirror and you like how you look, that's great. But if you got burnt in a fire and your whole body was scarred, I still see your soul and I love you. And that's what I try and tell young people is look how you want to look. Be in the world the way you want to be. But you better know who you are beyond this vessel. Beyond, I better know who I am beyond my tattoos. It's very important for identity and especially for you seeking identity. But in that journey, you guys, these families were my everything. I mean, literally to the point that I was, my last office was 1,500 square feet. It was right across the road in Crossing Center. As other therapists would kind of phone it in and go to Pier 1 and um, Ikea and get like all the same one painting and two chairs, I was throwing a pool table in there, music, arts equipment, a flat screen TV, a Nintendo Switch all this wild stuff. So my last office kind of became this playground and parents would call me and they'd be like, Wes, first of all, people say you look crazy, but they say you're a very competent, intelligent clinician and that um, you're the guy to bring my kid to if they're resistant and they're done doing therapy. And so I'd have parents call me and they say, my kid's been to two wilderness programs, three different IOPs, They've seen four different therapists and they're still shut down and they're refusing to do any more therapeutic work. And I'd say, look, I don't know what I can do, but I know if you could get them up to my office, we might be able to connect. They'd come in and I'd be able to connect on something, whether it was music, arts, anime, we'd play pool, we could um, play video games. And in that humanistic, relational, person-centered healing, it, it was healing me as well. That's what I was called to do on this earth. It's what I was good at. It's what I knew. 
But after six years in private practice, I started to see every single element of the mental health industry, and I started to see a very unhealthy systemic system that I was having families come into my office, burst into tears, and say, we've spent $300,000 in our therapeutic continuum of care, and we've done all these programs, we've listened to all the experts, and now we don't know what to do, and our young person is still struggling. So I started to ask the families. I was like, what, what were these programs like? If you could go anywhere you wanted and have it work the way you wanted it to, what would it look like? And I started to ask all the young people. And it was really these young people that would join with me and we'd start to envision together. And they were like, man, if there could be a music studio, if there was a skate ramp, if there was an arts arena and this, and I'd get a piece of paper with these young people and we'd just sit down and start to draw it out. And then the ones that weren't really interested, they'd come in and I'd be like, check out this drawing. What do you think of this? Would it be cool if I had an awesome like warehouse and you could come in and you could do this? So over that time, and I'm going to skip ahead some and I'll kind of rewind. Um, I built Eternal Strength. And this was, um, you guys, is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Beyond being a father to a special needs daughter, um, building this center, we opened the doors April 2020. So it was January of 2020 that my wife found this 8,500 square foot building right behind Q Barbecue over in Alpharetta, right over by Cambridge High School. She finds this building. I'm gonna be very candid with you guys. At that point, I had $11,000 in an IRA. It's every dime I had to my name. And she finds this building and I'm like, man, I think I, think I could do something here. I had four people who were willing to kinda of come on board we opened the doors April 2020. We, we've since, you know, hit over three years being open. We're serving about 65 families now. We've served hundreds of families. We grew from a team of four to a team of 17. Now we've shrunk back down to 10. I've gone through every growing pain you could ever imagine as a business owner. I didn't know anything about business. And it was, it was God in so many beautiful ways about 14 months in, I was 180 grand in debt and I'd done everything that I could to make payroll for my team by taking out these loans. And I was, I'll, I'll digress and tell you guys this, this story because it answers the 22. So I was, you know, my wife, who's my rock, my everything, she reads the Bible quite a bit and she's read it several times over. I myself have read bits and pieces, but never its entirety. And I was asking my wife, I was getting really overwhelmed and really stressed. And I was like, Allison, babe, how can I read the Bible? But I only want to read the cool shit. Like the really, like the good stuff, man. Like, and she was like, okay. You, you know, she was like, you could read these devotionals. You could read stuff from these Christian mystics. You could approach it like this. Um, but you guys, I was, I was having what I would call really intense, almost panic attacks because I couldn't make payroll. I didn't know if I was going to be able to keep the center open. And I had this dream and this vision. These young people and families were benefiting from it, but I was really struggling. So on the way to the center, uh, there was a small little church in this little graveyard. And I was going, I was working 100-hour work weeks. 
So I'd wake up, I'd leave my house at 5.30 and I wouldn't come home until midnight. And I was just working, building this team, structuring all of what we offered, building out the center in the different arenas. And when I'd get my most stressed, I'd go walk that graveyard. For whatever reason, it put everything in perspective for me. If I could go walk through there and kind of see, okay, life is fleeting. Let me really kind of ground in what's the most important, my family, my children, these families I'm trying to serve. And it was the morning of my birthday about two years ago. And um, I've been asking my wife, how can I read the Bible? How can I, you know, these certain parts? And then I have a lot of tattoos. It's obvious. And my buddy Ty, who's the creative director at the center, he's up here, if you can see him, right here. I've known him for years. He's a tattoo artist. He's a beautiful human soul, amazing, psycho-spiritual, really creative. He's a mentor and our creative director. I said, Ty, at some point, man, I want you to tattoo my eyelids. And he's like, you're crazy, but I'll do it. Um, and he had sent me a Bible verse when, when things were really stressful at the center, and it was 11:24, um, which was the fig tree. And this idea that anything through prayer is possible, anything. And so I really resonated with it. And I was like, come on, God, show me the way. Do I keep this center open? What do I need to do? What am I not thinking of? But I thought that morning, I was like, yeah, I'll do 11 and 24. And then I was like, no, I don't think it's 24. I don't like 24. I mean, I like it, but not enough to tattoo it on my eyelid. And then I was like, you know, I really, let me look up the symbology of 11. So I looked it up, and it says in numerology, different studies, that 11, 22, and 33 are what they call master numbers, the only master numbers. 11 means manifestation or belief. 22 is the master builder. So blood, sweat, and tears, building, you know, structuring, putting something together. And 33 is the master teacher, taking what you've built and birthing that to the universe. And so I was like, that's it, man. I'm going to do 11 and 33. And then later did the 22. But on my way to the center that morning, I was driving. And I was like, 33? What else is 33? I was like, how old was Jesus when he died? And I didn't know. So I asked Google, which knows everything. And I was like, 33. And I was like, that's interesting, man. That's awesome. That's even cooler. I'm coming right around the road by the graveyard, and there's a giant book in the middle of the road. I drive over it. I got this old Monte Carlo that's Allison's grandmother's. I drive over it, and then I pull in a driveway, and I kind of checked in with my intuition. It was like, that's your book. Go get it. And I walk out into the middle of the road by this graveyard that I had these haunting moments, questioning everything, and it's a giant leather-bound gold-leaf page Bible in the middle of the road. And I picked it up. I know. (laughs) And I rode to the center that morning, and I was like, and I opened it up, and it said, you know, this book belongs to and was, was gifted by, and I just wrote, gifted by God to Wes on the road. Wow. And so that's, I think God was like, hey, you want to read the Bible? Here. <laughs> Here to just read it, man. Um, but in, in that moment, 14 months into the center, that's when I started to say, I was really praying a lot, and I was going, who do I need to reach to? And there was a couple dads that I knew, and I'd worked with their sons. And they were really, um, they were serial entrepreneurs, and they understood business really well. So I reached out to um, Kevin Haskett 
and I'd worked with his son for years, and he'd always drop his son off for therapy, and he, we'd talk. He was the CEO of two large steel companies. He'd be talking about business. So I reached out to him, and I met with him for coffee, and I said, Kevin, can you wire me $30,000 tonight? And he was like, no. What are you talking about? What's going on? And I was like, listen. And he, in the most beautiful way, put his arm around me, became a mentor, became a friend, helped me study and understand P&L, cash flow, balance sheet, helped me look at eternal strength, get it healthy. Another dad came on board to help with marketing and outreach, and it was this outpouring from community that allowed all these things to happen. So I'm very grateful to say that today we're three years in, we're serving over 65 families right now, and the thing I'm the most proud of is at that moment when we were in that debt, the reason we were in the debt is because I'd been scholarshipping families that I had no business doing. I had no means to scholarship. But we would get these families, and from an ethical and therapeutic standpoint, I was like, we're going to serve them. And this is like a single mom with an eight-year-old kid whose dad committed suicide and stepdad died in a car accident. They need therapeutic services. We're going to give them whatever they need like rock and roll, but not having the means to scholarship those families really began to hurt the business. So that's when we created our nonprofit leg. My wife and I sat at the kitchen table. We filled out the paperwork and we got our full 501c3 for our nonprofit leg called Cosmic Lamb. And last year we were able to scholarship over $93,000 in therapeutic support services to families that can't afford. This year we're on par to do a couple hundred grand and we're growing our fundraising with that. We have a financial aid form. We're gonna be part of Roswell City Day of Hope. We're trying to offer therapeutic support and services to families that can't afford and still be able to serve other families as we grow and be able to apply for grants. So all of that's in the works and I'm building the team to be able to do that. Um, but I wanna back up real quick and run through this. So we serve at the center young people as young as 10 and as old as 25 is kind of our age range. It's not a hard stop. We've had kids that are younger. We've had some that are eight, nine, and we've had young people that are older than 25, even in their early 30s. If they connect with the work and the way that we do it, then we wanna be able to serve that family. Everything in eternal strength is private pay. We're not on insurance panels. I've attempted that in many different ways, you guys, and they will, in a very difficult way, not allow you to do the therapeutic work that you need to do, and um, it becomes extremely exhausting. So everything is a la carte, but when we sit with the family, we can provide as much care as a PHP and as little care as they need, and everything we do is month to month, and it's fully customizable. Therapy's 250 an hour, mentoring's 150 an hour, groups are 125 an hour, and then we sit with the family and we say, what do you need right now, this month? And with every family, we course correct and customize each month for what they need. The young people coming to us, I always see as unique human souls on the journey, on the radical pilgrimage of human growth and development. So they may have different challenges, whether it be neurodiversity, autism, behavioral challenges, sensory issues, or substance abuse, addiction. 
anxiety, depression, mood disorders. We could look at it through a clinical lens, but the way we do the work is we're always trying to be extremely, I'm gonna jump back real quick. This is how we break down everything we do. We do our community involvement, which is really we're trying to offer at least every other month an entirely free community event that happens at our center. It's 8,500 square feet. So we usually do a big backyard barbecue. We've done two different art shows and we're opening up that to the entire community. Everybody can come for free. And then a big part of what we do, you can see, yeah, there's Jesse down there, man. Beside Ty. And yeah, Um, but our groups, our podcast room, skate ramp, and we've what we do we call radical youth work because we really want to get the youth involved. As they come to the center, we're asking them, what are you passionate about? What do you care about? What makes your heart sing? And how can we take that unique interest and weave it into your therapeutic growth journey? And so that's been beautiful. They've helped us build the center and that's our experiential work. So we have five therapeutic mentors. They're all incredible, salt of the earth, people that I've known for years that I've put through training to become radical youth workers. They do regular clinical supervision with myself and my clinical director, Kara. Amazing team of people um, that I'm very, very proud of and proud of the work that we do. But As we do mentor sessions, they're a little bit different from therapy because there's the experiential element, which is really getting the young person involved with a big brother or a big sister that's going, what do you care about? What do you want to do? If you love guitar, we're playing guitar. If you love art, we're going to do this. But we have one kid come in, and even if we don't have it, we had a kid come in and he's like, I want to build a forge and make a sword. We're like, we don't have a forge, but we're like, we can build one. And so him and his mentor went to Home Depot, got on YouTube, started to look up all the schematics of how to build a forge. And next thing I knew, I was coming into work one day and they're making a sword in the backyard. And I'm like, damn. So it's, but it's that potentiality because I believe in my heart, you guys, it's not that young people don't want to do therapy. They just don't want to do traditional therapy that doesn't give them voice and creativity in how they do their therapeutic work. Because what we've noticed is if we get them linked up and they're doing experiential mentoring and they're part of our community groups, then the therapy that they land on, there's Jesse with a clay mask too, man, up there. And tie with the pottery. We have a full pottery room. But if we get them connected in those two arenas, then our last piece, the counseling and the depth psychotherapy, the humanistic, person-centered, relational, they're open. They want to talk about all of that. Anxiety, self-harm, pain, trauma. But if you do it in a clinical way, especially with youth, and that's what I saw time and time again at different psychiatric hospitals, IOP, PHP, a young person would come in and a clinician would sit down and go, tell me about your self-harm. When's the last time you cut? Where's your depression on a scale of this to this? And these young people are so intelligent, so intuitive, that they go, you don't, you don't even really care. You're just doing this to check a box and ask and diagnose me. And so it really became this 
doctor, clinician, patient, client, and this hierarchy. And what we try and do is we try and join with the youth and say, I'm going to tell you about myself, my own journey, and I'm going to invite you into a sacred space where you can open up and we can explore these things together. Let's work together. And that's been beautiful. Um, But I want to jump back really quickly to speaking primarily about addiction. So this is because of my own journey, which did involve anxiety, depression, suicidality, and these different challenges, a big component was my addiction. And I've done all my PhD work, all my dissertation work on addiction. The title of my dissertation is The Hand of Addiction, The Spaces in Between, an auto-ethnographic and transcontextual becoming. They, my, the crew that came to my graduation, Mike and Andrew, they were like, dude, you have the longest name up there for your dissertation. It was like, we didn't even understand half of it. But in this, in this beautiful program, I got to understand my own addiction. So what an autoethnography is, is I want you guys to think about ethnography comes from anthropology. And so an ethnography would be a cultural study. It would be if we were researchers and we decided to go to Papua New Guinea and study the tribes. That would be a cultural, sociological study, an anthropological study of that tribe. An autoethnography is you would begin to look at yourself as a researcher and what was happening for you as you studied it. So I did an autoethnography. I basically took my own personal lived experience of addiction from the ages of 17 to 23, and I went back into it trying to understand it alongside all of the clinical and counseling research of addiction. And what I came up with is I call the hand of addiction. So if you guys will all hold your hand up, yep, and kind of look at it. Gregory Bateson, brilliant, you can put him down now. Cool. Make you hold it up the whole time. Gregory Bateson, um, a brilliant ecologist, anthropologist, psychologist. Has anybody ever heard of him? He wrote Steps to an Ecology of Mind. You may know his father, William Bateson, who actually coined the term genetics. He was a brilliant scientist, so he coined the term genetics. Gregory Bateson said when you look at evolution and you look at something like the human hand, You have a tendency to think that it's five separate things, the fingers. But when you really examine it, you notice that the only reason there's any separation is because of the four spaces in between. And you also, when you look closer, you see the connectivity. You see the web that connects the thumb and the nerves and the muscles of each finger and how they work with one another. So this hand of addiction is what I used as a scaffolding to understand addiction. And here I'm going to give you a brief kind of like uh, simplistic version to break down. If we go study addiction in any way, shape, or form, if you get on Google right now, if you go look up any TED Talks on addiction, if you go to Barnes & Noble, if you get on Amazon, you go to order a book on addiction, it is going to fall into one of five categories. It's either going to be the biomedical, which I call the thumb, which is going to say, Addiction is a brain disease. 
has a lot to do with neurochemistry, biochemistry, genetic predisposition, DNA. You're going to get a lot of focus that says it is biological, it's neurological, and it's embedded and it's organic. It's the nature part of our nature nurture. Then you're going to get quite a few books that have the psychological, which I call the index finger. And these are going to look more at early adverse childhood experiences, childhood trauma, different challenges that may happen in the psychological realm that can be tied to and correlated with increased addiction. Then there's a brilliant book by Dr. Bruce Alexander called The Globalization of Addiction where he says, and I won't give you guys the middle finger, but this is the middle finger, I'll hold it like that, um, that it's our society, our culture, Our culture is set up to feed our addictions. Capitalism, the economic system, consuming. He even goes as far as to look at um, Australian aboriginals and early Native American communities and how we basically did what he calls psychosocial disintegration. We pulled them from their land, pulled them from their tribes and communities, and as a result, that increased individualistic culture has created and curated more addiction, more consumption, more codependency. He's the, um, he gets associated with his work that he did in Rat Park. I don't know if you guys were ever familiar with that. There was these early studies they did in the 70s where they took isolated rats, put them in cages, and they put one water bottle full of regular water and another water bottle full of morphine or heroin, and they would observe the rat. And every single time, this isolated rat would go to the drugged water and would use until they killed themselves. And Dr. Bruce Alexander came in and said, well, they're isolated. There's not many other options. I'm going to create Rat Park. And he created this huge, almost playground for rats where they had all these colored balls and tons of food and they could have as much sex as they want and families. He created this huge community and then he put the drugged water in there and the regular water. And in Rat Park, nowhere near as many rats went and used the drugged water and very few of them ever OD'd. And so he started to look at the environment. He started to look at the socio-cultural. And then you're going to get the developmental. And this is the one that speaks a lot about our adolescents, our teenagers, our young adults, and is going to say that they haven't developed their prefrontal cortex yet, they don't have executive functioning, it's impulsivity, it's risk-taking, sensation-seeking, and oftentimes talks down to young people. And then the final, you'll get the spiritual, or the pinky, which really looks at everything in addiction being an attempt to connect with something higher than yourself or an attempt to escape yourself. My work would say, you guys, not only is it all of these, but we need to look at the relationship between these. What is the relationship between the biochemical, the psychological, the sociocultural, the developmental, and the spiritual? Because anybody that is plagued with addiction has elements of each of these going on and it's really important to look at the relationships in between. Does that make sense for everybody? So I think it's, I get very frustrated anytime somebody tells you this is what addiction is and this is how you treat addiction. 
I think addiction is complex. I think it is nuanced, and I think it's very, very important that we don't skip over any of the fingers, but we also begin to look at the spaces in between, the relationships between these things that can help us better understand addiction. And that's a lot of what we do for many of the, however you want to frame them conceptually, the ailments, whether it be anxiety, depression, um, mood disorders, thought disorders, it's really, really important to remember the hand and to begin to look at every single aspect and the relationships in between. Does that make sense? And then if I can show you guys, uh, I'll show you one quick video and then we can open it up for questions if that works. Does that work good? Um, let me see if I can get to it on here. I may just need to go. So the other in, important piece, and I tell a lot of young people this, and this is a bit, a bit different. Um, Do you know if there's a, a Wi-Fi? Let me just use my phone, see if that does. I like to think about, in all of my work through addiction, rather than viewing it as a deficit, as an ailment, as a disease, as an affliction, as something that I need to get rid of, I've really come to understand it as um, an integral part of who I am and working on integrating it into what can oftentimes be a superpower if you learn about yourself enough. So the same exact addiction that brought me soul loss, three arrest, emotional turmoil, fallout with my family is the same obsession, fixation, and addiction that built the center. It's, it really, when I look at it, they're both just like, I got, I'm on a mission, I got blinders on. So for me, addiction is really simply defined. If you want to define it, you could say, it's just, I'm going to get that no matter what. No matter what stands in between me and that, I'm going to get to it. Now, when it's a drug, it becomes detrimental for that person. It's so destructive for that individual, for that family. But you'll see them get it come hell or high water. If that's the fixation, if that's what they want, they won't stop. But when it can become something that is a life mission, that is empowering, that there is passion there, and I think especially when you can integrate spirituality and move ego out of it, and look at a spiritual relationship with God and say, what do you want me to use my life for? What am I put here for? What is my mission? What is my purpose? It's that same energy. It's just being wielded in a different way to get a positive. Does that make sense to everybody? Um, we don't know the internet in here? Awesome. Perfect. All right, don't judge me on whatever shows up on YouTube. I work with a lot of youth. They use <laughs> We'll see what pops up.
I am addiction and you I am not hear addiction that? Okay. all at once. Addiction defines me and also deconstructs my being. Addiction is a malleable tool that at any point can either destroy or bring life to my journey of development. It is the energetic current of addiction that runs deep in my bones. I have held it with me always. It has simply manifested in different modes and forms. Addiction is neither inherently good nor evil. Rather, it depends on how the individual utilizes it and stands in relation to it. Much like a sword, one can plunge the blade against one's own skin and create self-destruction or death by suicide. Or one can wield the blade as a tool of growth, liberation, and empowerment. I have chosen the latter. Addiction can be both beautiful and tragic, joyous and haunting, life-giving and life-destroying. It is molecular. Addiction is an assemblage in flux, not a stagnant entity. If you were to utilize addiction for positive growth, what matters most oh. is your understanding of the pattern that connects and your constant fight to create lines of flight and not become molar or rigid or stuck. Addiction is rhizomatic, a multiplistic energy. So be careful where you channel or direct it because it grows quickly and oftentimes is unstoppable with momentum in any one direction. Inspired by the conceptual frameworks and poetry of Nora Bateson, I utilized her template to highlight my identity with I. I can imagine that I am just the person in my head and the skin bag I live in pretending that I am not. My mother and my father, my children and my friends, my wife, the families I work with, my clients, friends, community, the food I have eaten and the thoughts I have, the heat of the sun and the mold in the earth, the streaming water. I am the embers in the fire. I am a microbiome of 10 trillion creatures, including the land, ideas, and names of my nation. The current embodiment of 200,000 years I don't know where of it sapiens. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys, and, and I'll send you a link to it and you can get the whole thing. Um, but I, I really see that and I try and work with youth around that. So, um, no clue. Um, but that, that to me is very important because another quote that I try to really connect with and let youth understand is the most powerful force in the human psyche is how you describe yourself to yourself. And so I'm watching our youth tell themselves that they are damaged, diseased, sick, broken, have ailments, and I really think there's a whole nother way to look at it. And whatever you are going through and dealing with this symptomology, whatever it may be, our tagline at the center is you are not broken, you are not sick, you are not damaged, you are eternal strength. And so helping these young people understand whatever they might be challenged with, ADD, ODD, bipolar, mood disorder, anxiety, depression, that this is something that if they can learn about themselves enough, they can channel that energy, understand themselves, and turn it into beauty and growth and strength. So now I'll, I'll shut up now. And I'll let you guys, any questions you have, I'm here for it. I'm going to ask a question. Have you seen, a, uh, it's uh, called Addiction, full documentary, Nova by PBS? No. So for 
friend of mine sent it to me today, and um, it was like I think every single person should see it. But it was so incredibly enlightening because it was really about the opioid epidemic. Yeah. But it was just talking about how many people are dying and how society needs to change. Like what you said about how we look at addiction. Like it's it's an, like they look at it as an illness, you know, and how. Um, instead of saying, oh, you just have to stop, right? Um, that they're really saving a lot of lives by having these clinics that, that you can go and get the methadone or the suboxone. Right, right. Risk and, reduction, um, harm I reduction. It's interesting because it just, the stories that they were saying, how many lives really could have been saved and just how us in America, how we look at addiction and it's just, it's like black and white, right? You yeah. do it, you're bad, you gotta stop, yep. and then you're good. And it's not like that, it's, it's really a disease. Right, um, and, it, well, and it's complex. It has it, all yeah. those elements where it's like, um, there's another beautiful video um, on YouTube on addiction called Kyrgyzstat. I think it stands for something small things, but I'll, I'll send you guys links if you have your information, but they they talk about exactly that they say we are the only country that takes people who we feel like we need to incriminate and we take them and we put them in cages and then we blame them for not getting better and we're kind of doing a lot of what the rat park studies showed which is we're just putting people in isolated cages telling them that they've done something wrong and repeating that instead of pouring it into some type of treatment. And there's all these, when you get into addiction, a lot of people have very stern beliefs. So there's many people right now that think that any type of um, help or passing out needles or test kits, they're like, you're just enabling and that's harming and that's just prolonging it. And I've worked with so many people in addiction, it just starts to get really complex. But I agree with you where it's if we could see it collectively as not just a certain group of people, but as it's impacting all of us. And how do we how do we do because even if we come away from substances, this sucker, man, this is a whole nother addiction that like time, energy, effort. We're watching our children on social media. Um, and so it really starts to look at what is your relationship with anything, with a substance, with food, with sex, with technology, with drugs, with alcohol, and how do we get healthier? Because most of the times that's just an uncomfortableness with we don't want to be alone with ourselves. And to sit in stillness and be alone with ourselves creates an unease and we reach for something. And so it's that social piece as well. But that, what'd you say? It's on Nova. Yeah, it's so called addiction on Nova. People that are actually daily document uh, tracking wh- who, how many people are dying in what what states, what cities, and they're tracking and and seeing how there's places that were just getting demolished by drugs, and they were opening up clinics and, and yeah. redoing things and getting their their cities back. Awesome. And it's pretty interesting, but it's called addiction, and I'll show you afterwards. Awesome. It's by PBS. Okay. And just full documentary Nova. I just is fascinating. Awesome. It's about um, it focuses on our young kids and how they get into addiction and going into college, and um, 
yeah. I mean, I could just go on. It yeah. Just I love really how you impacted me. framed it like addiction. You made me think like, okay, we put this stigma on the word, and you think in bad person, bad addiction. But I like how you flipped it. Like, we're all addicted to crap. It's like, it sounds like you're ch trying to channel that into some positive because we're all addicted and have that compulsion to do something. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, yeah I believe that. I think it's this energy. Kind of the key to these young people is like, because they're looking for something and you're just kind of like directing them to that passion or something. Yeah. I, th I think if they can find something they connect with, then the, yeah, that's positive. Then the energy can be poured into that. Um, but it, but so much of it depends on how long they've been using. You you start to get uh, a really complex understanding of like, okay, how long has this young person been using? What does their family system look like? What is their ecology? What is where they're living at? What support do they have available to them? What are they thinking about themselves? It's like all these layers come into play. Family environment um, and that's where you start to really see the complexity of it because for somebody that goes and uses say heroin or something that does have a physiological addictive component to it somebody coming away from their heroin use if they have a job they have a relationship they have a positive outlook on their future is going to look a lot different from somebody coming away from a 15-year long relationship with heroin and they've lost their job and they've been homeless multiple times. It's like you start to put in all these variables and it creates this very complex thing that I think each person needs a multitude of support and resources to be able to come out of that space. And sometimes the hardest thing is sometimes there's an internal piece of them that's tied to it that chooses not to. And I use the term choice lightly, but many people never come away from abuse and use. Just a line real quick. I like this beautiful story. appreciate you sharing your life story. Um, your, your connection with God and Christ and your spirituality, I never kind of got what, at what point in your life or your story did that kind of like, is that from youth or does something happen along the way that yeah. other than the Bible you found? Yeah, you yeah. Know, what, I'm assuming you probably connected to God before you found Yeah, him. yeah. Um, you know, it was interesting. I write a lot about it. Um, I remember a story and maybe I was like five or six and I was asking my mom all these questions about God. I was like, Mom, what does God look like? When can I talk to God? What kind of job does God have? And my mom was finally like, Wes, just write God a letter. And I was like, okay, dear God, what do you look like? When can I talk to you? And then she said, go bury it in the backyard. And we lived in Virginia at the time. I buried it. And I woke up the next day, and she was like, well, did you go dig it up? I was like, no. And I went, and I dug it up, and it said, dear Wes, I'm neither male nor female. I'm all around you. I'm in your heart. I'm in the birds and the trees. You can call on me whenever you need. That has stayed with me forever. And when I was looking at my dark night of the soul, for a long time, I thought God had left me or I had left God. And now when I go back and I look at it, God was always there, always there with me through everything. I was just choosing to not look or to not be in relationship with. So for me, God's always there it always connected. It's back to that Course in Miracles. All things are echoes of the voice of God. 
God is ever moving, ever flowing, ever present. It's like a like a radio frequency. But I was just tuned into a different station. <laughs> you know, and like and I'm sure many people were going, come back to this station, listen to listen to 97.1 the oldies. It's good, I promise. And I was like, nah, nah, I'm going over, you know. But that frequency and that vibration, I feel like has been with me always, is with me always, is eternal. And it's it's always just been my movement. Yeah. Anybody? Yep. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Absolutely. You sound like my son with your love for art and uh, music and question that I have in a practical point of view from the family side. Um, if you're, because he's 24, he doesn't think he needs it. He, how do you, and I know it's an, it, it depends a lot on the individual because they need to want that. But is there anything we can do to help him to get to that point? And are you saying just like therapy in general, like outpatient? It probably could do with your kind of therapy yeah. that is unusual because I think the typical one you could talk and what is wrong with you is fix it, let's put a label on it, let's get your medication. He is very bright and very against that. And that's what I, I would look for. That's a huge part of the reason that we created the center. And the amount of young people that we've had be dragged to the center by their parents that were like, oh, hell no, I'm not going anywhere, I'm not talking to anybody. And then their parents get them up there and drop them off, and they're like, what is this again? And then they start to open up, and then they hop back in the car, and parents will call and be like, yo, I don't know what you guys did, but they want to keep coming back. Um, but I, I really think it's anywhere that they can connect with. So I don't want to be the only spot. I want to train other staffs in how to do the work that we're doing, and I would say anything that your son is willing to connect with. And that could be a coach, that could be a mentor, that could be a guitar teacher. Getting him connected with something that could be an entry point to positive influence in some way, I think would be awesome. And then, yeah, letting him lead the way. And so a lot of times we'll tell families with our center, like, you don't even have to mention that it's therapy. Because so many young people may view therapy in a certain way and they hear that word and they immediately shut down. And that's why we say we're a community youth center. All right, you don't want to do depth psychotherapy, that's fine. Come up, hang out with us. We got mentors and coaches, and come see the Community Youth Center and see if you want to be a part of that. And we give them a lot of autonomy. But I would say just subtly giving hints. Because we've had it go the other way, too, where parents will be like, look, I found this really cool, awesome space. And the more that the parents hype it, the more the young person's like, it's stupid, it's lame. It reminds me of the time when I was like 13 and I got a Hootie and the Blowfish CD and I loved that band and then my mom got a hold of it and like put it on in the van and was like, I love these Hootie guys. And I was like, I hate them. <laughs> I hate, you know what I mean? It's like parents can't win for losing. A lot of times our mentors are saying the same exact thing that parents are saying. They're just, these young people are more receptive because they won't listen if it's coming from mom and dad. But I think you could... That's why we're trying to create more community events and just be there. Um, you guys remember the old school rock band Mother's Finest? Um, they're coming and doing a giant fundraiser in downtown Alpharetta Friday, October 6th. And we're one of the charities that's going to be part of that. So, like, that would be a really cool time. We're going to have our booth up there, everybody who works at the center. And we're just trying to find unique ways to introduce young people to the center 
so that they don't feel like it's I got to start going to therapy. It's more I found this cool place and what they one of their offerings is therapy. Wes, can you walk us through like the first time a kid gets there, whether he wants to be there or not, what that looks like, how long it takes for you to build a relationship with him or her, you know, to where they start to open up. I, I'm yeah. trying to visualize seeing all these kids in there with music. When does how does the kid open up and who who helps is it you? Is it one of your Coaches or mentors, who does that? So, when a family reaches out to us, we start with a 90 minute initial, and that's an hour and a half. So, let me back up. It really depends. We take each family for exactly where they're at. So, can I use you guys as an example? If you all called us and you said, look, we got a 24-year-old son. He doesn't want to go anywhere, and it would be better for him to just come up to the center solo by himself and check it out, we'd start that way. And we'd just be like, awesome, let's just set up a day and a time where he can come up. And then I'd set him up with one of our mentors, Mike or Andrew, and it would be a very organic introduction to the center. Hey, dude, I'm Mike. Here's what we do here. Here's who we are. Let me give you a full tour. But... Most of the time, we do a 90-minute initial, and that's led by myself or my clinical director, Kara, and we put a mentor in with us. We meet with the family, we do the entire tour, and then we sit, and the young person will go spend time with the mentor and kind of do like a day in the life. Where do you want to go hang out? So young person goes off with the mentor, and they get to connect, and that mentor will say, look, if you start coming up here, you get to do sessions how you want to. You get to pick where you want to spend time in the center. This is what it would look like. If you want to come up once a week, twice a week, it's very organic, giving them a lot of autonomy. And then myself or my clinical director, Kara, will sit with the parents and break down and get history on everything that's going on so that we can make a solid clinical recommendation and say, let's start the first month with two times a week mentoring, once a week therapy, and one time in that month, some parent support. And the thing that I'm, I was really adamant about is I didn't want it to be longer than a month because I want the family to get engaged and then be able to course correct based on what they need. So as long as we can pair the family with a therapist, a mentor, and some family work, then we can get creative in whatever that needs to look like. And it's all relationship. So it, it depends on the young person, but most young people within the first month, I mean, we've got 65 families right now. Every single one of those young people wants to be up there. Nobody's resistant. So the first time the young, the, the young person goes in that hour and a half, you're partnering them with a the mentor right away? Yep, but then they get to pick. Inevitably, in passing, they'll meet other mentors, and if it's not a good fit, they'll be able to pick somebody else on the team. And, and my team will know within the first month. Mike may start working, and I'll be like, this is Andrew's kid. He needs to work with Andrew more. Are they, are they relating with the other kids that are there, or is it just one-on-one with the mentor and they're not around the other kids? So we do everything one-on-one -on -one until we formulate our groups. But this was very important for me. Most IOP and PHP programs will take everybody that's 13 to 17, put them in a group. Everybody that's 18 to 24, put them in a group. And what you'd run into is you'd run into a 17-year-old client who had 
heroin addiction and two past suicide attempts beside a 15-year-old kid with no drug use who's on the autism spectrum. And look, I'm all for we can learn from everybody, but those two don't necessarily need to be in a therapeutic process group together. So we try the first month to really get to know that kid. And then the team will know, oh my God, he's got to meet so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and and be in these two groups. And we curate everything based on relationship, understanding where that kid's at, and understanding what's going to be the positive influence on them and who they need to be around. Now, our big community events, it's everybody. Everybody's in the backyard, there's live music, we're all eating food together, and it's professionals and parents and all the different kids and it's supervised. But when we do our groups, we're really trying to curate a group of young people that need to be around one another and would benefit from being around one another. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. What are the expectations and guidelines in terms of uh, kids coming to the program We, so we build a lot on mutual respect, and we've had kids test our boundaries quite a bit. Um, so everything, because we do so much one-on-one, there's very little room for them to not be supervised and do anything. We've had a couple kids um, just push boundaries with like trying to smoke weed on the premises or bring substances up there, and we try and use relationship to hold those boundaries too and basically be like we want you up here we really want you to be part of this but if you keep doing this you can't and we inform the families and let them know and everything is just about mutual trust Um, so that's been a huge part of just us being very clear with them here's what we expect while you're up here and the more trust we have with you the more autonomy and freedom you get And so we almost have some alumni clients that like literally will text and say, can I come up and use the podcast room or the music room on Friday at three o'clock? And if we have enough trust with them and we know who they are and we know they're going to respect the space, then they can come up and do it. It gets harder with the younger kids. If they're like, you know, a 10 year old, like, can I just come up and hang out for two hours? The whole team is like, no. Mm -hmm. And at first it was crazy. I mean, it was beautiful because none of the kids wanted to leave. But at one point we had like 40 kids (laughs) running through the center and we're trying to do sessions and mentoring and we were like, no. So we had to really pull back and get very structured. And that's why right now everything's one-on-one. We do a couple times at the center that are called open space. It's like every other Friday from three to five. And there's a couple mentors up there that can supervise. But other than that, it's kids are up there when they have sessions. Now, my ultimate goal is I want to really grow it into a thriving community center. And I'm just trying to do that. I'm trying to slow down because the last three years I was like moving very, very quickly. But I'd love to grow it to the point where it could be like a YMCA or a Boys and Girls Club. And you could come in as long as it was open hours and you could scan in with your lanyard and there'd be tons of supervision and it would be safe and you could use the facility how you needed and then also have your sessions. And we're going to do that at some point. With We've had a lot of interest. I have so many clinicians and um, different people that want to do their practicum and their internship there and do volunteering there so we can build a lot of supervision. 
Did you set those boundaries early? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. Yep. What about Wes? Kind of following up on Phil's question: If the kids are using when they get at home during the week. So we consider ourselves risk reduction, harm reduction. There's other addiction programs that the only way you can be a part of the program is if you're clean and not using. That's not who we are. I watch too many kids fall through the gaps. I would, I would end up in my private practice be the one working with those young people who weren't stopping their use. And so another uh, prominent, prominent um, addiction program, Insight, I think in order to be a part of Insight, you're regularly drug tested, you have to be clean, and you cannot be a part of Insight if you're not. We're not that. We do a lot of risk reduction, a lot of harm reduction. It's being able to sit with the young person and say, we can't tell you to stop using, but we are here to push you in every single way that we can to look at your relationship with this substance and see what it's really doing to your life and to your family. And we find that's the piece where we get so many young people who are willing to open up. So even even families will bring us young people and they'll go, I'm pretty sure that my kid's only doing this and this. We'll build so much trust in that first month that kid will open up and be like, I'm actually using on this level. And then our clinical staff can in a very person-centered, humanistic way, have enough relationship with that young person to let them realize they need more care, they need more help, and they willingly enter into it with us rather than trying to force them into it. And we've just watched that go different ways. It's something that we don't align with. I'm glad other programs are out there, but there's too many young people that have just basically been like, nope, I'm going to keep experimenting and I'm not going to stop and nobody's going to stop me. And I still think those kids need help and support and therapeutic guidance. Kind of back to your clinics. We're not condoning or encouraging use. We're not passing out anything, but we're relationship guided and person-centered enough to say, come as you are. Come as you are. And if you show up for... But it it gets into, if we have a young person that shows up several times under the influence, then we're going to have like a heart-to-heart and be like, yo, you're not respecting the space. What you do when you leave here, we can't control your own choices, your own behavior. But in order for you to come up here and have a mentor session, a therapy session, you can't show up messed up. And usually they want to be up there so much that they respect that enough to be like, all right, so it's been beautiful. Everything's just based on a lot of trust. I got one last question. If nobody else, I don't want to monopolize this. Does anybody else have a question? I had a question about more about the mental health, um, kind of what we're dealing with, addiction and mental health, like ADHD, bipolar. What are your thoughts? Do you have psychiatrists that you work with? Um, no, it's a great question. So I still, it's still the hand. It's still everything that we look at, we look at holistically from a biomedical, psychological, sociocultural, developmental, spiritual. We want to look at all those lenses. Um, I, if, you, if you backed me into a corner, I would define myself as a critical and anti-authoritarian psychologist, which means <laughs> I very much understand the field of psychology and psychiatry, but I'm very skeptical of what it's done in certain ways that I feel like has been really abusive and negative. 
And one of those ways has been with a lot of labeling without a lot of follow through. I'm all for understanding different deficits, whether it be ADD, mood disorders, autism spectrum disorder, um, thought disorder. Where the ball gets dropped is none of these psychologists and psychiatrists will sit with the clients and help them fully understand what that really means and loop it back around to this is a beautiful part of your essence and who you are. And if we look at it the right way, you can learn about yourself and we can turn it into a superpower together. I worked at so many psych hospitals and a kid would get a diagnosis of bipolar and they'd, they'd just go sit with the psychiatrist, come back with the meds and the diagnosis, and they'd sit there and talk to me and they'd go on bipolar now. And I'd be like, yeah, like, that's one aspect of you. Do you even understand how that gets diagnosed, what those char character symptomologies are? And it's interesting because it's like the young people would wear it as their new identity cloak. And so, you know, um, they'd say, I am bipolar. And I would oftentimes think that if you had cancer and you went to your doctor's office and the doctor was like, you got cancer, you wouldn't get in the car and call your mom and be like, I am cancer. You'd say, I have cancer. With mental health, it so quickly becomes the essence of who that person is especially for young people, especially with identity development. So I just think it's dangerous to give those labels without a tremendous amount of process, care, follow through. And a lot of times young people's intelligence will be um, severely um, looked over. And I've sat with, so we try and sit with young people to fully understand themselves. Psychiatrists, I know several that I like that are holistic, that are focus on biochemical, psychological, sociocultural. They work with us directly, but a lot of them are full. Um, Dr. Zachary Engler, um, Dr. Brian Thomas, Dr. Lisa Forbes, a bunch that I have on my list that I refer to regularly, but then we were very blessed because my clinical director, Kara, has a good friend. Her name is Jordan Goad, and she is a mental health wellness um, practitioner so she's licensed to be able to prescribe and she's extremely holistic and works alongside our team and so oftentimes I'll give her name because I do feel like I hate about psychiatric and psychotropic medication you're usually going to get a lot of polarization and you're going to get people who say all medication is horrible and it's awful and we need to stop it and you're going to get other people who say it's the only thing that'll make any change and I really think it falls in the middle. I think it's a very personal choice. It's a very sensitive area, and it takes a lot of trial and error. But I've seen medication help so many young people in different ways, and I've seen it do massive damage and hurt so many young people. So for me, it's awareness, it's education, it's sitting with the family, it's having them understand where they are on their journey, and then looking at what they feel comfortable with in terms of that treatment. And to your point about mental health. I think for us, it's about first and foremost, understanding the young person, seeing them as a beautiful, unique human soul, and then begin beginning to understand different parts of what they might be challenged with currently, developmentally where they're at, and understanding that holistically to the best of our ability, but not just labeling it, 
really understanding, okay, what's going to make this person live their best life? And what does that look like? Because if you tell me that I have ADD and I need this many treatments of this, and we begin to look at it as something that can be eradicated or taken away or gotten rid of, I think that can set you up for a lot of um, pain and heartache. But if we can look at it as something that might be a part of you that has grown and developed and how do we integrate that and how do you take care of that and still become your best holistic self, then it's a whole different conversation. Does that make any sense? Cool. Wes, thank you very much. Yeah. Hang around yep, I'm here. I'm hanging out. Cool. Thank you.